you will join me in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. If you're using the Blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 983, page 983. The title of our sermon this morning is Knit Together in Love, and the key words for our worshipers and training are struggle, knowledge, and delude. One of the great hymns of the Christian church is called, I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord. And it's written by a man named Timothy Dwight. Now, Timothy Dwight was born in Northampton, colonial Massachusetts, in 1752. And he's the grandson of the great Jonathan Edwards. His mom was Edwards's third daughter. Now, Dwight was taught at home in his early age. And by four, he was reading his Bible regularly. At the age of 13, he entered into Yale University, and he graduated from Yale University at the age of 17. After his graduation, he taught at a grammar school. He became a very successful farmer at the same time. And then during the Revolutionary War, he was a chaplain in the Continental Army and became a very close friend and confidant to George Washington. After the war... He was a state representative for the state of Connecticut, and then he became a Congregationalist minister in 1783. Now, eventually, Dwight joined the faculty at Yale University, his alma mater, and he worked as a tutor there for six years until he was made the president of the school in 1795, where he remained until he died 22 years later. He was credited with raising the academic standards to new heights, as well as improving the overall moral and spiritual climate of Yale University and community, even holding evangelistic services at the campus chapel to counteract many of the influences of the culture around him. The culture around him was much like Yale University is today. In 1797, when he was teaching several classes at Yale, Dwight began revising and editing a collection of hymns that were written by Isaac Watts. He added 33 of his own hymns to the hymnal, including I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord. And that's a a hymn that's based on Psalm 137. Now, this hymn book was published in 1801 under the title The Psalms of David by Isaac Watts, a new edition by Timothy Dwight. Now, most of Dwight's hymns have been forgotten altogether, but I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord, is actually one of the only major hymns that was written in America during the two centuries after the first pilgrims landed on on Plymouth Rock that are still in common use in the church today. Now, this hymn talks about the church in several different ways, ways that should make the hearts of every Christian delight. It begins by telling us what the church is and what God thinks of her. It says, I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church, our blessed Redeemer saved with his own precious blood. I love the church, O God, her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, engraven on thy hand. In the second stanza of the song, he explains the church as the object of of great concern for every true believer. It says, if e'er to bless her sons, my voice or hands deny, these hands let useful skills forsake, this voice in silence die. If e'er my heart forget her welfare or her woe, 
Let every joy this heart forsake and every grief overflow. In other words, if my voice or if my hands ever fail to serve God faithfully within the church, my hands should lose all of their skill. My voice should be silenced. And he explains that this is the reason why the church should elicit a loving and caring response from from God's people. And it's because it is the spiritual house that God has established for his people. There are are two more original verses. I'm not going to, to recite those. But the entirety of the hymn rests on this great reality. That God loves and God has established his church and he keeps on blessing her. And that Christians should love and cherish the church of God and do all that we can to continue to serve and bless her with the gifts that we have been given. To be a Christian is to love the church of God. And it is this very idea that helps the Apostle Paul show us what he wants to show us in our text this morning as we begin in chapter 2. We've been walking through the book of Colossians, and you'll remember that we've said Paul is combating the false teaching of Gnosticism in this letter. He doesn't do so in a direct manner. He doesn't attack Gnosticism by mentioning it, but instead he is, in general, giving a very positive affirmation of the things that are true that Gnosticism says are false. And so as we read this morning, we will see more of that here in chapter 2. Now, Paul does all of this this morning by first presenting himself as an example. We've seen how he explains who he is and what he is doing as an apostle of God. And now he is showing us that the Gnostics were erroneously saying Um, certain things about, we saw in chapter 1, the Lord Jesus Christ and who He is, about knowledge and how it is acquired and what that means to our faithfulness. And He continues this morning as as we go on into chapter 2. So let's read together Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you And for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Well, the first thing we see in our text this morning in verse 1 is that Christians should have a concern and love for all of God's people, not just their own local church. Again, look at verse 1. It says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not yet I've not yet seen face to face. So Paul begins this passage by discussing his own struggle on behalf of the people at Laodicea and the people he has not seen face to face, which is the church in Colossae that he's writing to. Now remember, here Paul is writing from a prison cell, and, and he's, he, we're going to learn toward the end of the letter that he is using this time to pray for the church, obviously to write to the church, 
and to prepare these men by the name of Tychicus and Onesimus. They're going to come and minister uh, to the church in his absence to the people. And so with all that Paul had endured as a minister of the gospel, he's saying what I am doing and the way that I am doing it does not come without great personal cost. Loving and serving the church in the way that the Apostle Paul did came at great personal cost to him. And this is one of the hallmarks of any Christian engaged in ministry, in service to the church specifically, but most especially for pastors, elders, and deacons within a local body. Paul actually explains this by using a word that that translates as agony. And it's related specifically to the kind of agony that one would endure in the Olympic Games, which in his day were things like the marathon or a sprint or, or wrestling. It's grueling. It's difficult. There are times you want to give up. There are painful times. You just want to stop and ask, why am I doing this? Am I even making any progress? And it's all just this daily grind that doesn't quit. And so Paul is agonizing on behalf of the people of God. But perhaps the thing that makes this all the more notable is the fact that as Paul identifies, he has never even once personally visited the church in Colossae. In fact, far from uh, what we... uh, Far from what he has in terms of his relationship with the other churches, what we know from the biblical text alone is that it seems that Paul maybe only knew a very small handful of the believers at all in Colossae, maybe five or six of them. So he had no idea who these people were personally. He didn't know what they looked like. He didn't know the circumstances of their individual lives. He didn't know anything about their families or what they did for a living. He had never seen them. He had never known them. And yet, he wants to remind them right here, I am agonizing for you. I am putting forward all that I am and all that I have for your benefit. Why was Paul doing this? He's doing this because he loves the church. He has a great love. He has a great concern for God's people. And it's the same love and concern that you and I should have for all of God's people, not just those within our local body. This is exactly why each and every week here at Redeemer, we pray not only for our church, we we pray for one of our sister churches and our network from around the world. We pray for other local churches here in our community. We pray for other faithful denominations and ministers of the gospel. We want to see the gospel of Christ. We want to see the kingdom of God. We want to see the people of God flourishing and growing and looking more and more like what God desires and what Christ prayed for and what Christ died for. When the great missionary uh, William Carey was a young boy, he was fascinated with studying various explorers, and he earned the nickname Columbus from his friends. Well, later on in life, Carey was a shoemaker, and then he was a pastor. And while he was a pastor, he was working simultaneously as a, uh, as a teacher. And so while he was teaching, he used the skills that he acquired as a shoemaker uh, to sew together a, a leather globe. And he would take the globe out before his students as he was teaching them about geography, and it is said that in times when he was teaching, he would look at the globe, he would begin to weep, and he would cry out, and these are pagans, all pagans. And it's that very thing that moved Carrie to pray for the world that was yet unseen to him. 
and it drove him to take his life to India, where, where he became the father of the modern missionary movement. And there's no doubt that William Carey toiled and he labored diligently, and he struggled. He agonized on behalf of the people he knew were without hope, without Christ. He knew God's elect existed among the most pagan and foreign lands and was concerned to reach them. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. You know, sometimes I've heard Christians say things like, why are we spending our time and our money and our resources on people out there when there's so much that could be done with our own church? And while it's certainly not wrong at all for us to focus some of our time and money and resources and energy on our local church, and we do that very thing, isn't this kind of question really missing the point of what the church is called to do outside of our gathering for corporate worship? Yes, we have a primary obligation to our local church as individual Christians. But as the body of Christ, collectively, united together in covenant union with one another, we have an obligation to do nothing short of reach the rest of the world. And when we love Christ, when we have a profound sense of what He has done for us in the way that He did it for us in dying a death that we deserve, that we might live forever, we have a far greater longing for others to know and to trust and to love Him alongside us all around the world. I pray, I pray that all of us here know the gospel. And when we know the gospel, we want others to know the gospel. And that compels us to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. You know, a lot of non-believers think the reason we do missions is because we want to be humanitarians. We want to build schools and hospitals and drill water wells. And unfortunately, much that goes on under the name of Christian missions is just that and that alone. But the reason, the primary reason we go to the nations is not to drill water wells and not to build schools, but to preach the gospel and to see churches planted, to see Christians come into the church and be part of the church that we are called to love and to serve and to be unified with. That is our great desire. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to cultivate in our hearts a love for the church that goes beyond our local body. As I said, we have an important obligation to one another in the church, and we're going to see more of that. There's no doubt. But we need to be aware and thankful for God's organizing, in a, organizing us as the body of Christ in a spirit-filled community that loves and serves one another. And yet, I hope we are all praying for other churches in our network. I hope we're all praying for other faithful gospel-preaching churches in our community. I hope we're all praying for missionaries around the world who God is using to raise up new Christians who will plant new churches and send out new missionaries. It's really easy to get territorial. It's really easy to, to be isolated and to forget that there are other great works of God going on all around us. And there are other faithful people who need our prayers and our encouragement as well. And we should agonize in prayer. We should agonize in encouraging them. When we, when we hear of needs that come up in other churches or when we hear of the great gospel efforts of other churches, we should seek to support and pray for them. When we hear of God's work in certain churches and it's going well, instead of being skeptical or instead of being jealous, we should thank God and praise God and ask for His continued blessing on them. 
We have a long way to go before the church collectively, the body of Christ around the world, gets to what Jesus prayed for in John 17. Remember in that high high priestly prayer, Jesus cried out to the Father. He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Now, the full realization of what Jesus prayed is in the new heavens and the new earth. And yet, what a glorious thought that the church of God all around the world could be one. Now, you see, Jesus' desire is that the church be united. That's not to say that the differences that divide us aren't important. They are. They are important things. We have work to do. We have growing in wisdom and knowledge and understanding to do. But that can only happen when we approach God's Word in humility alongside one another. Not as people who are, who are trying to disprove everything and fight about everything, but as a people who are trying to come to terms with what we see in the Scriptures and the reasons why we see those things differently from time to time. We live in a fallen world, and so we have finite wisdom, we have finite knowledge. We'll see at the end of our passage this morning that there's even false teachers who are intentionally trying to lead us astray. We need to avoid them. We need to speak very candidly and very openly about them and do whatever we can to protect God's people from them. But that's a far cry from splitting up local churches because of the frequent petty disagreements that often come about. It's a far cry from not being willing to extend the hand of fellowship to someone because we have different opinions on something like baptism or the structure of church government. Listen, even amongst your four elders at Redeemer Baptist Church, I know it's hard to believe, but we don't always agree on everything. The other three guys are wrong every now and then, and in time they will be correct. But until that time, we don't always agree, and yet... We continue to walk in love and unity and peace. And so far as I can tell, God is blessing those efforts by using us to lead this church in a way that he continues to show us that he's pleased by bringing spiritual growth in the lives of his people. So recognizing that as the case, we should have the same kind of attitude toward other faithful churches and ministries. We don't have to give up our convictions But we're careful to ensure that the hills that we're wanting to die on are really worth dying on. That we're not destroying what God has established just so we can prove how right we are. Instead, we must have a great love. We must have a great concern for God's people and His work around the world. Can you imagine if as Christians all around the world we had this mentality, what God could do with that? I pray it can be so. Let us be faithful to struggle like Paul toward that end. Now, here's the reality, and we all know that it's true. It hurts to care sometimes, doesn't it? It's like a wrestling match in our souls. There were surely nights when Paul himself tossed and turned as he thought about the churches and their struggles and as he empathized with their difficulties. 
You and I have struggled with one another. We have wept with one another. We've, we've lost sleep and, and we've agonized over one another. We've labored in prayer for each other. We've given of ourselves and of our time and of our resources to support one another. This is what the church is called to do, but the even greater call is for us to look beyond us and to look toward God's people all around the world. Do we have a love and concern for them as well? If we have hearts like Paul, we won't just pray and labor for our church. We'll pray and labor for other churches in our city. We'll pray and labor for God's faithful churches around the globe. Second thing we see in our text this morning, verses 2 and 3, Paul shows us that Christians understand more of Christ when our hearts are bound together with one another in love. Paul here in these two verses provides an interesting insight into our knowing more of Christ. There's a lot going on here, but one of the things we should take note of is that what Paul writes here necessitates our covenant relationship with a local body of Christ. I've talked about being a part of the universal body and our need to love and serve the church, but this does necessitate that we're a part of a local church. We need to think about what it means to be a part of the church. We can't be part of every other Christian's life in the world, and in fact, we can't be intimately involved on the same level in every other Christian's life in our own church to the extent that maybe we want to be, but we recognize that that this is localized to the extent that we get a bit of what Paul is explaining that we are knit together in love within the local church. Maybe more with some than with others, but the more we have this knitting together with the body of Christ, the more our hearts come together as God's people in His church, sharing our lives, sharing our agonies, sharing our suffering, sharing our resources, the more we will have an understanding and knowledge of Christ. And so a deep and confident understanding of Christ just doesn't, it doesn't just come from our thinking, but also from our loving. So you see, the way we are able to have greater assurance of the Christian faith and greater understanding of the mystery of God and the Lord Jesus Christ is to have our hearts knit together with other believers in the local church. So here's how this plays out. I could just sit at home in my study all day, surrounded by my books, and read everything that's ever been written on serious theological matters and get all that information in my head. I could think about it. I could write more about it. But having knowledge on my own without discussing it, without mulling over the ideas in community with other people that I love, that I'm accountable to, in covenant relationship with, It's a knowledge that will not be of any great benefit to me or to the church. Paul is saying very explicitly that we cannot, listen brethren, we cannot do Christian life on our own. There are people that have a mentality that we can just have our Bibles and our books and sit at home on our couch and just do church as a family, whatever that means, and we don't need people. It's just me and Jesus. Many of you have probably read and benefited from the works of a man by the name of A.W. Pink, Arthur Pink. A.W. Pink was a theologian. He wrote a lot of books, the most famous of which was called The Sovereignty of God. Well, what a lot of people today don't know about Pink is just how insubordinate to God's command regarding the church that he was in his life. 
His biographer wrote this, quote, He labored faithfully for his remaining 12 years of life, writing and producing the periodical while he lived in virtual isolation, not even attending a local church. He justified this behavior by explaining that the admonition not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together does not mean that the sheep of Christ should attend a place where the goats predominant where the goats are predominant, or where their attendance would sanction that which is dishonoring to Christ. On Sundays, he spent his time pastoring his flock of faithful readers by writing letters, answering their questions concerning the Bible and theology. Would-be visitors who had traveled a great distance were discouraged as they were usually turned away, not even being allowed to see him. The townspeople knew little about him, except that each day at a certain hour, he took a walk through the town. And so in his mind, there were no churches good enough. They were all disobedient to God. So it would, it would have been wrong for him to have anything to do with any of the local churches. And so he's disobeying God's direct, unambiguous, and insistent commands to be personally in community under the oversight of a church. And to not do that, to not be a part of the church is not a holiness of life, and it's not sacrificially living for the Lord. It is in indulgent and arrogant living for oneself. It is someone who didn't seem in any way to get what it means to live as a person who wants to know the full breadth of the mysteries of God. Not only does it seem that that Pink thought he was too good to associate with imperfect saints, he wanted it all to be his way. He wouldn't even accept visitors. And perhaps at the height of his hypocrisy, A.W. Pink wrote a lot that was very critical of the evangelistic efforts of other Christians. He insistently wrote about evangelism and how everyone else was doing it wrong. But remember what I just read to you. The townspeople knew very little about him except that each and every day he took an hour, an hour walk around the community. You see, Pink is just an example of so many who think like him. But Paul is countering that very idea here, and he's saying, if you really want to know Christ in his fullness, you will be knit together with other believers. You cannot escape that reality. It's exactly how God has designed it. You have no escape. So guess what that means? That means that you need me. And I know you're all thanking God for that right now. But I need you. We need one another. We need people who are smarter than us, further along than us, more faithful than us. We need people that we can come alongside and help and teach. We need people who we think are difficult to get along with. We need people who are very unlike us, that aren't anything like anyone we would ever choose to be our friends in the first place. We need people who are younger than us. We need people who are older than us. We need people who know everything about us. And we need people who are simply going to encourage us and love us and pray for us. We need each other, brothers and sisters. I could go on and on about all the different kinds of people that we need in our lives, but the point is that we cannot escape the reality of our need for one another as the local church. And the only place that need can be fulfilled is in the local church, and that's where we find our greater understanding of Christ. The Puritan John Davenant wrote, Love is the fruit of unanimity in faith, 
which so binds the minds of the godly, as it were, in a covenant, that though some light offenses may intervene, yet as the limbs of the same tree, driven apart by the wind, immediately come together again because they are fixed steadily in one and the same root. So something similar takes place as it regards the minds of the faithful because they are still rooted in the same faith. It's a great description, isn't it? When we love one another in the church, we experience unity. Unity is enhanced. And when that is enhanced, when we experience that unity of the church, we experience Christ all the more. Through one another, through our knowledge of and our love for Christ and how that's shared and how that's worked out in the body. So when the church serves us in our times of need or when we're used by God to serve others, our knowledge of Christ is enhanced. And that's the only way that can happen. If we love, there are, as Paul explains, full riches of complete understanding. No intellectual process will lead to a full grasp of the mystery of Christ unless it is accompanied by a love for Christ and for other Christians that we are knit together in covenant community as a local church. We cannot pursue a knowledge of God in willful, unloving isolation, rejecting fellowship with other believers. Historically, some have tried that and have suffered incomplete or even distorted understandings of what Christianity is. Complete understanding of the mystery comes in loving community. We must study the Scriptures. We must look at them intently. With all of our heart, we must love Him and His people. And then we will know as we ought. So when brotherly love is present and continuing, it facilitates a profound knowledge of Christ, which in turn results in wisdom and knowledge. When we love Christ and the Scriptures and Christ's church, His people, we're united in love to one another. And as that happens, the mystery of God unfolds. We discover all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The truth must not only be known and understood in love, but it must be lived out in our midst to bring greater depth to our knowledge, to our understanding. The heart of Paul's concern was that the Colossians would grow even more toward Christ. He was, he was concerned for their minds, and that's what the bulk of the first chapter addresses. But now he's ga- engaging the hearts of love for Christ in the church. He wanted them to be able to sing words like I shared with you at the beginning. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode. The church, our blessed Redeemer, saved with his own precious blood. For her my tears shall fall For her my prayers ascend, for her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. Paul loved the church and gave himself up for the church. We love the church, don't we? Will we give ourselves up for the church? Lastly this morning, verses 4 and 5, Paul shows us that Christians who are knit together in love are more able to stand against false teaching. Paul gives us his purpose statement here. Why is he writing all of this? Well, again, we're reminded of the broader context of the letter. Paul's defending the gospel against the false teaching of the Gnostics. And so as he's doing that, he's addressing this fact that they were saying, if you want to really be spiritual, if you really want the eyes of your spiritual mind to be enlightened, then you need to have the special knowledge that only the Gnostics had. 
And yet Paul's writing to them, and he's saying, I recognize that you're being influenced by all of this. And so he's a bit more direct here. He's a bit more direct in his going against what the Gnostics taught. Paul's immediate concern is to guard these believers from the Gnostic delusion. It's interesting how he says this. Look at the statements here in verses 1 and 5. How does Paul seek to guard them? He tells them first of his tremendous struggles on their behalf in the hope, secondly, that this will knit their hearts to his and to each other's in love and that out of this bond of love would grow, thirdly, a deep and fully assured understanding of God and that out of this love and understanding would emerge, fourthly, a strong encouragement of faith and that this encouragement would, fifthly, be the power that guards them from the delusion of plausible arguments from false teachers. And so the pattern is that sacrificial struggle leads to love. Love leads to an assured understanding of God. Assured understanding of God leads to a strong encouragement, and strong encouragement guards the church from delusions. And we all know this is true, don't we? We all know that having the accountability and encouragement and oversight of the local church is our, in our own lives protects us from the delusion of false teaching. Listen, when you find individuals, like I mentioned before, who claim Christ but have nothing to do with the local church, I guarantee you will find when you talk to them that they have some strange ideas about a lot of things, some of them even very heretical and very dangerous ideas. Likewise, and I've seen this happen, when you have a local church that doesn't have any kind of outside influence whatsoever. No associations, no denominations, no networks that they're a part of. The pastor doesn't have other pastors that he's friends in ministry with, that he talks with, that he meets with, that he prays with. The church doesn't have guest preachers come, and those churches they don't have to encourage them and to pray for them and alongside them. When you have people in the church, uh, the pastor discourages them maybe from listening to other pastors' sermons, all these things. Guaranteed, those churches are extremely authoritarian. They're going to talk about how they are the really faithful Christians in their community. The reason they don't have relationships with other churches is because nobody is as faithful as they are. And let me assure you, there will be some very strange theological ideas in a place like that. When you are self-contained and isolated and arrogantly going about it on your own without other people, anyone else having any kind of influence whatsoever on the church, you're going to end up in some really bad places. I will tell you, churches like this jokingly claim oftentimes that, that people always say, well, well, we're a cult, and they laugh about that. Well, <laughs> if the shoe fits. Right, so we can't be isolated as individual Christians, as the local church, we need the influence, we need the accountability, we need the encouragement, we need the prayers of other Christians. And so Paul's including himself here, and he tells them, look, I'm not there with you, I will likely never meet you face to face on this earth, but in spirit, I'm there. My heart is with you, my concern is with you, my prayers are with you, I love you and I long for you and I continue uh, to want you to continue in faithfulness and well-being and to continue to hear that the church is in good order and under sound teaching. And when we have that concern, not only for ourselves, but for the church of God all over the world, when we pray for and encourage other Christians and churches in these things, our hearts are tied together tighter and tighter, and we, in doing so, are building a fortress that the evil one cannot penetrate 
And even the false teachers will seek to penetrate, but cannot deceive and devour us. And so, brothers and sisters, let us struggle together on behalf of one another that our hearts would be knit so tightly together with the body of Christ in love. And out of that, let's pray that God would give us a greater understanding of who he is and what he is doing. And out of that love and understanding, may we be all the more encouraged in the faith to be protected from the false teaching and the crafty arguments that exist in this world against Christ and his church. As we are united together, we can look to Christ together. And as we look to Christ together, we will be pulled into one another tighter and tighter to experience the true blessing, the true gift, which is life in the body of Christ. It's a gift. Let's take it. Let's enjoy it, brothers and sisters. God has given it to us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you this morning for your church. We thank you for your church all around the world and for all who labor diligently, who agonize day in and day out to love and serve the body of Christ in prayer, in the ministry of the word, in encouragement, in hospitality. Lord, we have far more brothers and sisters in this world that we will never meet than those that we have. And yet, Lord, we know that when we're with them, our hearts are drawn together in love because we are brothers and sisters adopted into the family of God. And so we pray, Lord, for your church around the world. We pray as Christ prayed that there would be true unity, that the church would be one. And that as the church becomes one, that we would walk together in faithfulness, encouraging and loving one another. Lord, I pray that you help us to be faithful, to guard against false teaching, to not fall victim to isolation, to territorialness, and to all of the things that would keep us from being a part of God's body in this world. But instead, Lord, that we, in guarding ourselves from false teaching, would also open ourselves to loving, encouraging, and serving alongside other faithful believers and other faithful local churches. We thank you, O oh God, for your people, for all that we learn from others, all the ways that we grow because of what we, we see you doing in other places. May, may you banish any jealousy from our hearts, any desires to, uh, to overtake or to be arrogant, or to live in the flesh. Lord, we are but mere humans with finite wisdom and understanding. May we be humbled. May we be humbled by what you're doing around the world. And may we be gracious to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And may you do all of that, that you would be glorified and your church would be strengthened and the attacks of the evil one would be to no avail. And we pray you would do all of this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.